Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> it's so good to be here. So very, very good to be here. It was great to have the first service. We were packed out. And then now to have all of you here is such an honor and such a privilege. I am a mother of six children. And that is my proudest accomplishment. The great thing today is five of my six children will be home. Woohoo! <laughs> Only Matthew and his wife in Nashville, but we did get to see him uh, last month, so so glad. And um, so thank you, my hubby and Pastor Josh, for letting me have the pulpit on this Mother's Day. <laughs> if you don't know anything about pastors, they have a hard time giving up their pulpit sometimes. <laughs> so I feel honored and privileged to be here. And uh, I just have a word I want to bring to you, not necessarily a Mother's Day message, but as the mother and the mama of this house. Is that okay? But before we get going, I just want to read something to you about Mother's Day. To those of you like myself who have given birth, we just celebrate with you. It's just the greatest privilege to bring new life into the earth. But to those of you who have maybe lost a child this morning, we just want you to know that we grieve with you. And if you experience maybe miscarriage or failed adoptions, we mourn with you. To those of you who have walked the difficult road of infertility, forgive us for the foolish things we've said. Or maybe the foolish questions that we've asked. To those of you in here who might be foster moms, mentor moms, spiritual moms, stepmoms, we desperately need you. If you're a woman in here, whether you are, have given birth or not, you're a mama to somebody. You have a mother's heart and you're a mama to somebody and we need you. To those of you who have a great relationship with your mom, we celebrate you. But there's some of you in here who have experienced abuse, neglect, and great pain from your mother. We feel your pain, and we acknowledge your pain. But the one thing I think all of us can be thankful for this morning is that our mama gave us birth. What I'm so grateful for is that all of our mothers gave us birth. She may not have planned us. She may not have wanted us. She may have abandoned us. But God has never abandoned us. And he wanted us. He needed us. He's there for us. And we can celebrate. Not only our mom gave us birth, but through Christ, I have been born again. And that's the great part. I have been born again, and I have new life. Amen? Amen. So happy Mother's Day to all of you in here. Like I said, I want to just share as the mama of the house. A few months ago, my husband found a great quote that says, children ask questions. How many of you know that if you're a mama in here, they ask a lot of questions. I still ask a lot of questions, and a lot of times I annoy my husband, but I like information. <laughs> but children ask questions, parents give answers, grandparents give perspective. I have been a grandmother for eight years now. My oldest grandson is eight years old. I have seven grandchildren, and the eighth one is on the way. Woohoo! And so I really want to come to give some perspective on what is the most important thing that I can tell you and that you can do with your life as a Christian. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about your, myself. Some of you know me really well. Some of you are good friends with me. Some of you know who I am. Some have no clue who, clue who I am. But like Lindsay said, my name is Tracy McCann. I'm Pastor Baba's wife. We started the church 17 years ago. And I get this question a lot. Where are you from? 
I'm not from Louisiana, but I go back home and I get this question, where are you from? I'm like, I don't know anymore. <laughs> from Jesus. <laughs> but I was born in Tacoma, Washington. It's about 30 miles south of Seattle. And lived there till I was eight years old when my father decided to move about 45 minutes outside of town to a house on a little island called Fox Island. And my husband always says, I got my foxy lady from Fox Island. <laughs> but I grew up in church. When we lived in Tacoma, I went to the Methodist church, a very traditional church. But, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm very thankful my parent, well, my mom always brought me to church, not always my dad. But I'm very thankful, even though it was a traditional church, whether you have been in a traditional Protestant church or Catholic church, God will still use something there to place a hunger, to speak something. Because I can still remember being in the basement of that little Methodist church and the teacher saying, telling us how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I didn't know why he died. I didn't know what sins were. And if I had sins, why didn't he just say, hey, I forgive you? Why did he have to die on the cross? But God still used that to stir a hunger in me. And then the little church on Fox Island was also a traditional church. And I remember just being hungry for God. And how many of you, as a little girl or a little boy, there was something in you that you wanted a connection with God or to know if God was real or not? And that's what I had. And so there was this curiosity for God, but I didn't know how to know God or how to become a Christian. But when I was in about the fourth, fifth grade, somewhere in there, my oldest sister, I have two older sisters and one younger sister. She got saved, born again, met Christ, made Jesus the Lord and Savior of her life. And I, she, I began to see a change in her. She started singing all the time. I didn't know what it was, but I remember thinking what she has I want. And how many of you are in this church today because you saw a family member or a friend or a neighbor begin to change? They might have invited you to church and you said, I don't know what they have. I don't know what God's doing in them, but I want it. Some of you have been there. Exactly. That's how I was with my sister. And so about sixth grade, she started going to this youth group with a small little group of kids that grew into over 600 kids. And somewhere along that line, about sixth grade, somebody gave me a Bible called The Way. In the morning service, Mr. Clayton was here, and he actually still has that same Bible that came out in the 1970s. And in the sixth grade, I read the entire New Testament. I was so hungry for God. I just wanted to know more. And began to go to this youth group that was more of like one of the first non-denominational churches. I had never heard of those before. I'd heard of the Catholic, the Baptist, the Methodist, the Presbyterian. And began to go there, and the hunger just started to stir inside of me. And one Sunday morning in the little Sunday school room on Fox Island, Washington, probably only 100 people could fit in that church, I gave my life to Christ. I had waited a while because I was hearing all these testimonies about really bad people, like my husband. Just <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> and I, one thought, well, I wasn't one of those. I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't running around with boys. But I didn't know my sins were different. A lot of my sins were pride and self-righteousness. And so I gave my life to Christ. And all through high school, I just had a hunger for God. And so when I was a senior in high school, I met some people. And they were on fire for God. And once again, I was like, 
That's what I want. I was registered to go to college, but the day after my high school graduation, my dad left my mom. I had no way to get there, but I knew I loved those people. And so I got on a plane, and I flew to Lindell, Texas, and that's where I met my amazing husband with hair parted down the middle and feathered to the side. (laughs) So that's how we met. So I am now 55 years old. That was almost 37 years ago we met. It'll be 37 in September, and in August we'll have been married 33 years. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Only by the grace of God, right? (laughs) And so I've seen the different eras of church growth. In the 1960s, when I was a little girl, when we came in church, all the men wore suits and ties. How many of you are men? Men are glad you don't have to wear a suit to church anymore. Um, And there was always a different name through the generations for that season in the church. You know, the 1970s was called the Jesus Movement, and kids were just getting born again everywhere. And the 1980s was the faith And so many different things. Some of my older kids were telling me, you and dad were the generation of the legalists. You know, you need to have more grace. And so the last 10 years or so, I've heard a lot of messages on grace. So I'm not going to preach on grace this morning. But I want to talk about how do you receive grace One thing that concerns me is I'm getting older and I have more perspective and I look at our culture and I look at our generation. I see that this is the generation of entitlement. And some of you older people will know what I'm talking about. Everybody wants something for free, free from God, free from the government, free from society, but they don't want to pay anything for it. So think about that in the perspective of the gospel. Is grace free? Is it free? Yes. And what is grace? Grace is forgiveness, the favor of God. How many, when you were in your sin, you felt like, I don't have the favor of God? Grace is the favor of God, divine forgiveness, his divine power, all these things. Is it free? In the generation that wants everything free, yes, it is free, but there's always something that we have to do, just like salvation. Salvation is free, but what we have to do is confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior and that he died. So we have to believe and we have to speak it with our mouth and tell people, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. So that's our part. So yes, it is free. It's absolutely free, but there's always something that we have to do. So I want to go to a... familiar scripture, and it's out of the book of Peter. The scripture is actually in the book of Peter and the book of James. And I love to read the books that Peter, James, and John wrote because these were three of Jesus's closest disciples. He had 12 disciples, but those three men were his tight friends. So they knew a lot about Jesus. So this verse is in Peter and James, but actually they are quoting King Solomon in Proverbs, who was the son of King David. And so the verse comes out of 1 Peter chapter 5. In the same way, you are younger, must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. And this is what I want to focus on, this scripture. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So is grace free? Yes. But who gets grace? The humble. 
the humble. So what I want to talk to you about this morning, which I've learned over the course of my Christian life, the greatest gift that you can possess is the gift of humility. What is it and how do you get it? And I can speak to you about this because I can say that my greatest sin was pride, was pride. For those of you who know me well, you know I'm more of the introvert. I'm not the extrovert. Um, and I remember I'd always just tell people I would be, wouldn't want to share my faults or my sins or admit I'm wrong. And I would just tell people I'm just a private person. And I remember the day the Lord came to me and said, Tracy, you are not a private person. You are a prideful person. You are not a private, per- prideful person. You are not a private person. You are a prideful person. And so what is the the kind of pride that God is talking about right here? Because a lot of times we tell our children as moms, I'm so proud of you. Or we do something like paint a couple bedrooms. I'm proud of myself. That's not the kind of pride that God is talking about. He's talking about a biblical haughty pride, a cynical pride, a pride that says, I'm better than you are. Or my needs are more important than your needs. That's the kind of pride he's talking about. And he says he's opposed to that. God says he disagrees, he's in conflict with, and he disapproves of the proud. But he gives that grace that we so desperately need to the humble. So what is humility? I looked up a couple definitions because those of you who know me too, I'm more of the teacher personality and I like information. That's why I ask a lot of questions. I love to look things up in the dictionary. And so I looked up the word humility, and it says, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. When you think about yourself compared to others, you may be okay, but what about compared to God? It also says, poor, undistinguished, less important, meek, respectful, and submissive. Now, when you read that word poor, I remember years ago, How many of you know what the Sermon on the Mount is and the Beatitudes? You might have heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. And the Sermon on the Mount starts out with, blessed are the, and then it gives an answer. Blessed are the, blessed are the. And the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I remember reading that thinking, I don't want to be poor in spirit. I want to be mighty in spirit. But over the years, I realized what Jesus was teaching them is, blessed are those that realize that they are poor, wretched, awful, nothing without him. That's what that means. And I love this last definition. If you ever want to look up some great definitions, if you're studying the word of God, which I hope you are, because there's amazing life-giving truths that will transform your life. But online, they have a dictionary called the Urban Dictionary. And this is the definition that this dictionary gave. An admirable quality that not many possess. It means that a person may have accomplished a lot or be a lot, but doesn't feel it necessary to advertise or brag about it. Hey, honey, did you see I did this? Hey, babe, did you see I did this for you? Hey, did y'all? Doesn't feel it necessary. Just quietly does their part but doesn't have to advertise about it. Great definition of humility. If you don't remember anything about what I talk about this morning, remember this one line, the difference between pride and humility. Pride says, my needs are more important 
than your needs. Humility says your needs are more important than my needs. I can guarantee you every argument probably that I've had with my husband, every controversy you've had at work, everything between your children is because you're saying, what about my needs? What about my needs? But when you are thinking your needs are more important than my needs and walking in that humility, the arguments dissipate. So some of you might be asking, well, what about my needs? My question to you would be, are you finding your needs in God? Because it says, my God will supply all of your needs. When I got older and I learned to find my identity in him and learned to hear his voice, and when I wake up in the morning, hear him say, hey, beautiful, hey, I love you, you're amazing, I'm so proud of you. When I hear those things from God, I don't have to claw my needs out of somebody else. Now, if they give me my needs... That's just like the French say, lanyop, right? But if I don't get those needs met from people or my performance, I'm still okay connecting with my father. So this morning, I want to look at the greatest example of humility found in the entire Bible, and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our perfect example of humility. So I wanted to go to one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, and it's out of Philippians. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, and I promise you, if he knew anything about humility, he did. Because before he met Jesus, he was one of the most prideful men there was. The Apostle Paul was called a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had memorized the first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He had memorized over 600 laws. He knew the Jewish law, okay? So he was up there, but he didn't know the love of Christ. He had Christians killed. And so when he literally was knocked off his horse, blinded, and met Jesus, it was an utterly humbling experience. So he is writing to the Philippians about humility, and he absolutely knew what humility looked like. And so he says this, don't be selfish. Now I could just stop and preach a message right there, right? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now, are we all equal in value? Absolutely. He doesn't say others are better than you. He says thinking, thinking. When you have that mindset, others are more important rather than, what about me? You're walking in humility. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ has. And this is the attitude that Jesus walked on the face of the earth with. Though he was God, think about that. Jesus was God. The humility of making himself into a human being, being born as a baby. Do you know how humiliating that would be? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. What is that saying? He didn't walk around going, hey, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. Look what I've done. I just healed the sick. I just walked on water. I just did this. He didn't cling to that. He didn't even announce it. 
His disciples wanted him to. When are you going to get up and say, hey, I'm the king of the Messiah? Didn't do it. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Another version says, emptied himself. And in my teacher mode, I wanted to look up what that means. Emptied himself is actually from the Greek word kenosis. And this blew my mind. Emptied means gave up his divine power. Okay? We're human beings. And a lot of times we think, well, sure, Jesus could walk on water. He was God. Well, sure, Jesus could live a sinless life. He was God. Well, sure, he could do all these miracles. He was God, right? Yes, he was. But he gave up his divine power. That's what kenosis means. He had no more power than you and I to overcome. You know why he could overcome? Because he was constantly getting his needs met from his father, talking to his father. He would tell the crowds, I do nothing but what my father tells me. I do nothing on my own initiative. I go nowhere unless the father tells me. You know why we walk in pride a lot of times? Because we're like, I got it. I do what I want to do. I decide what I want to do. But if we would be in constant communion with God going, God, what do I need to do? What do, you, what do you want to say to me? We would have that connection that Jesus has. So he gave up his divine privileges. And then not only that, the next verse says that he took the humble position of a slave. A slave. Okay, our country has worked over 150 years to try to get rid of the scar of slavery. It was not a good thing. Slavery means you're owned by somebody. You don't get to do what you want or go when you want. You are everybody's servants. And Jesus actually took on the position of a slave. That is true humility. True humility. And he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So Jesus didn't hang on to the fact that he was equal with God. Hey, what about me? If you find yourself thinking or saying a lot, it's not fair. It's just not fair that I have to go through this or someone else gets this or gets to do this. Life is just not fair. If you find yourself saying that a lot, think about this. Was the cross fair? No. But it was love. It was absolute love for you and for me. Absolute love. And he did it, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross for the joy because he saw the end. He's like, I don't care about being humiliated, being humbled. I know the end product of what is going to happen when I go through all of this. So remember, pride says my needs are more important than your needs. Humility says your needs are more important than my needs. So I want to look this morning, if, you have, if you've been taking notes, I want you to look at me with some signs of humility. Well, Ms. Tracy, how do I know if I'm walking a life of humility? How do I know if I'm walking like Jesus, a humble servant to others? Here's, that's a great question, and here's some signs. The first sign, are you willing like Jesus to be rejected? 
You know, we talk a lot about, oh, I have the spirit of rejection, but Jesus willingly took on that spirit. He's like, I don't care what people think. I'm going to lay aside my reputation. They might think this or that of me, but I know what my job is, the cross, the love, the redemption for my people. So being willing to be rejected. Another sign, are you willing to share your weaknesses, faults, and your sins? For a long time, I wasn't. I didn't even want to admit it. I had a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons why I was the way. And I'm not saying I'm perfect now. My husband sitting right here can tell you there's a lot of growth that still needs to happen. You know, when I do um, an inner healing class, it's a 16 week class I lead with women, the first half we look at reasons why we are the way we are. But towards the end, if you don't grasp that concept that those are reasons, but they're not excuses, you won't ever grow. There is no excuse for our sin. There is a reason sometimes. I've been wounded. I've been hurt. I haven't had needs met in my life. But it is no excuse to sin because what you need, God will provide. So are you willing to go to other people and say, hey, I'm battling with this. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? I just need some help. Are you willing to seek help from other people? The next one, sign of humility, willing to not have to prove you're right. Now, I was really bad for this. (laughs) My husband just shifted his eyes. (laughs) I always wanted to prove that I was right. And the truth is, I am the kind of person, I make very good decisions. I make wise decisions, but I wanted to prove that I was right. And I had to lay down my pride going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm right. Humility is more important than being right. Lay that down. Lay it aside. It doesn't matter. You know, I've learned to be quiet. Now, don't be quiet, and then when you're proven you were right, see, I told you so. That's pride. (laughs) The next one is, are you willing for God to fulfill you rather than a person or your performance? See, we're always looking to people. We want people to fill us, or we want our performance. We're either one or the other. I'm a performance. I want to work and work and work and do a good job and look back and have that fulfill me. But I have to know that God is the only one. No person, not your husband, not your wife, not a friend, not your manager, your co-worker. Nobody can fill you. It's an empty process. The only one that can fill you is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can fix you. He's the only one you truly need. If this watch breaks, I'm not bringing it to Pastor Bubba. I'm not bringing it to Walt. Walmart, I'm bringing it back to the company that made it, right? They're the ones that know how to fix it. If we're broken in need, we've got to go to the one that made us, and that is Jesus. The next one, are you willing to build up and esteem others better than you? better than you? Are you willing to build them up? Are you always trying to build yourself up and show everybody, hey, I did this, I did that. Hey, did you notice? Did you notice I took out the trash? I did this. You know what? God notices. You know, sometimes we want a reward here on earth. 
If nobody noticed, I promise God's keeping score. He is the justifier, and one day he will reward. The older I'm getting and the closer I'm getting to eternity, I'm like, you know what? I don't want my reward here. I don't want my thanks or my praise here. I want an eternal recognition that will last forever because this is temporary. If I don't get recognition here, I know that God recognizes and sees what I do, and he will reward me. Another sign of humility. Are you willing to love people with all their imperfections? <laughs> the funny thing is, all of us want that. You know, why can't you just love me for who I am? I'm a work in progress. But somehow we're unwilling to give that to the other person, right? We know we have a lot of things to change. But what about the grace for them and their imperfections? We're all a work in progress. Amen? Amen. Doesn't matter how old you get. Believe me, when you reach 55, there's still junk coming out. You may have overcome some things, but then more things come, and you got to keep on working, keep on going. Love people with all their imperfections. Are you willing to receive your trials as God's instrument to perfect you? Some people have a hard time with this. The things we go through, the trials, the pain, the suffering, the crises, You know what they do? They bring out this junk in us that God wants to clean and make right. Sometimes we say, no, that's the circumstances that bring it out with me. No, it's not. The circumstances only revealed what was already inside of you that you're battling. And God simply used that pain, that suffering to bring those things out of you. Let him do it. Let him do it. Are you willing... To not be defensive or justify yourself. I was really good at that one too. (laughs) You know, somehow it's always with our spouses, you know. (laughs) The people we love the most, you know, we can defend or justify why we did something. Humility goes, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted like that. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? No excuse. I'm not like that because you didn't do blah, 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 blah. I'm like that because I'm a sinner. And will you forgive me? True humility. The next one, our sign of humility. You're willing to give up controlling, fixing, and directing people. I liked that one too a lot. (laughs) It's a false sense of comfort to say that you are in control. You are not in control. Anything can happen at any moment. I don't care how much money you got in the bank, how much you think you exercise for your health, how much you think you protect your children. Anything can happen. You are not in control, but it's humbling to say, God, I trust you no matter what. I trust you. Are you willing to be misunderstood? I didn't like being misunderstood either. God understands, even if people misunderstand you. I've had people in this town, I know they've talked about, you know, about me. I'm the pastor's wife. I'm sure they probably said things or said things about how many kids we have or blah, blah, blah. It's like, it doesn't matter. God knows who I am. He knows my heart. He understands me. He knows me and I know him and that's all that matters. Not what people think. And last, are you willing, like Jesus, to be of no reputation? The Son of God gave up his reputation, took on the form of a slave, a servant, 
to give everything for us to redeem us. And he did it out of love because he wanted to, not because he had to. He didn't have to go to the cross. Do y'all realize that? It wasn't a forced thing. He had a choice. He even prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this from me. Is there any other way that we can redeem these people besides this? And then he finally accepted and said, Father, not my will, but your will. How many of us always still want our will? That's pride. Humility says, God, whatever you want to do in me, whatever. So pride has the eyes on the self. Humility has the eyes on Jesus. Jesus had his eyes on the cross. You see? King Solomon, who first wrote... God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Also, if you go back and read the Proverbs, it's full of scriptures. I couldn't even fit them all. Proverbs 27 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. And there's many, Proverbs 18, 12, pride goes before destruction. With humility comes honor. But I love the end of... The first Peter chapter 5 scripture when it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then he says, therefore, humble yourself in the next verse. And I promise you, if you don't humble yourself, God will bring something into your life to humble you. I've had it happen to me. He will humble you. And then the last part of that verse says, and at the right time, he will lift you up. You know what the right time is? When you're humble enough to receive that honor. You know, we want recognition, but God will bring it at the right time when you're ready to receive that honor. So how many of you go through life and you feel like, man, God's not speaking to me. I don't feel his presence. I don't feel anything. Maybe that's because what Isaiah says in chapter 57, God says, I live in the highly and holy place with those who are contrite and humble. Maybe you can't hear the voice of God or sense his presence because you're walking in pride and you're not walking in humility. He also says, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and I revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Humility always repents. One of my favorite figures in the Bible is King David. And I love how the Bible says he's a man after God's heart. But if you really read his story... He had an affair with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered. He didn't discipline his sons. He had a lot of troubles. He battled with different sins. But you know what he always had? A repentant heart. So it's not about if you mess up, because you will mess up. I'm going to mess up again. But do I say, I'm sorry? Will you forgive me? I cannot tell you how many times Pastor Baba and I both to each other have said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Thousands in almost 33 years, probably. (laughs) That's the key. That's humility. I'm sorry, Will, will you forgive me? God, I messed up again. Will you forgive me? Will you fill me with your power and your spirit and your love? Will you help me to see you once again? I recently read an interesting fact um, about how many people come to the ER every year falling on stairs. So when I first was reading this article, I thought of myself, people that fall down the stairs, right? Break their leg, break their hip, crack their head open. But as I began to read further, it said 
63% of people fall going up the stairs, and only 37% of people fall going down the stairs. I thought, what a great analogy. When you try to lift yourself up in pride, you're probably going to fall. But when you walk down the road of humility, you're much less likely to fall. Great analogy. You know, years ago, and I'm almost done here, but I I can still see myself sitting in that little Sunday school room on Fox Island, Washington. Back then, we didn't have no electronics, PowerPoint, and all this stuff. It was either a felt board or a chalkboard. Anybody relate to those days <laughs> still around? And But I can still remember this one little day in that Sunday school room. And my Sunday school teacher saying, do you want to have joy? Do you want to have joy? And then I started, I remembered that a couple weeks ago, this little way to have joy. But I also started thinking how so many Americans deal with depression, right? So one of the number one prescribed drugs is antidepressants. When Jesus said he's come to give us joy in life. And what the little thing about joy was, she wrote it on the chalkboard, not across this way, down this way. J-O-Y. This is how you have joy. Jesus first. O, others second. Y, yourself last. And that is true humility. But what happens is we get that all messed up. Myself first, Jesus last, or others first, if you're a people pleaser, always doing, and Jesus is at the bottom or somewhere in there. But Jesus first, others second, and yourself last will keep your heart filled with his joy. Amen? And I'd like to close with this scripture out of Micah. Micah was called one of the minor prophets. And he is near the end of the Old Testament. And normally, people read verse 8, but I'm going to start with verse 6. And my, this is the people asking Micah. And they come up to him, the prophet, and they said, What can we bring to the Lord? You ever felt like you've sinned up, you've sinned, you've messed up so much? You know, what can I do for God? I got to do all these works. Maybe you grew up in a church like that. You know, I got to do all these things. And that's what they're saying. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Next one, please. <laughs> What can we bring to the Lord? And they're going on. Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? All this stuff probably equaled up to millions of dollars. And what they're saying is, can we do? Can we give God something? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children? I don't know about you, but I'm not sacrificing Pastor Zach (laughs) to pay for our sins. You know, many times we sit in a church and we think, I got to pay for my sins. It's required. Remember at the beginning I said, God does his part. We always have our part. What is our part to pay for her sins? And then Micah answers the people and he says, no, oh people, no. That's not 
what God wants. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's all he asks you to do is to walk humbly with your God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you were the perfect example of living a life of humility, of rejection, of being of no reputation, of giving up all of your rights as a privilege of the Son of God, all for us, so that you could endure the cock the cross for the joy set before you your heart was filled with joy to do it for us and we will be forever grateful god fill us with your power that we too would walk humbly with our god we would do what is right we would love the mercy that you'd given to us we would show to others and we would walk humbly with you before our god